Welcome to Plants, People, Science, a podcast by the American Society for Horticultural Science, where we talk about all things horticulture. In today's episode, we learn about the challenges and future of large-scale strawberry production in California. But first, Sam, how's it going? Hey, Lara. It's good to see you. Um, it's going a little bit rough. <laughs> so I actually am I'm excited for the strawberry episode because I do strawberry research. Right now, I am between rep one and rep two of my big master's experiment. Um, and so I have to rearrange my treatments. I have to like take down my light uh, fixtures and put them back up in a different way um, to prepare for rep two. And so it's just been a lot of taking down the work that I did and redoing it. Um, but is that I'm, all for, uh, is that all for randomization? Uh, yes, it is. Um, to make sure within my growth chambers that, uh, there isn't a huge environmental effect on the plants. But I'm also very excited because in about a week and a half, I'm going to leave to Laramie, Wyoming, because I'm going to spend five days as a intern at Plenty, which is a, a vertical farming company. Yeah, that's a big one. Congratulations. That's so exciting. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really excited because they're doing strawberry work. They're trying to see if they can grow strawberries vertically. They've done a lot of tests too. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it behind the scenes. Yeah. It's smart that a lot of the companies are starting to expand beyond the specialty leafy greens into other horticultural crops. Yeah. I wonder where it's going to go. I mean, you did your PhD research, including some uh, African indigenous vegetables, right? I wonder what, what the future holds for that. Yeah, I mean, so most of my PhD thesis and work was on basil, but I did some dabbling in African indigenous vegetables, as you mentioned, and then some vertically farmed leafy greens. Actually, I just had a, a paper come out related to some of the chemistry on vertically farmed greens, which uh, is really fun to see that out there. Yeah, so it'll be cool to see where that world goes, though you're much more involved in it than I am at the moment. <laughs> well, congratulations. I'm not involved enough. I didn't see that paper come out. I've got to take a look. So uh, you've got some exciting news to share as well, Lara. What's going on with you? Yeah, a few things. I mean, this weekend is, of course, the ASHS conference. And so I'll be leading four different sessions. One is an oral talk for some of my work on my thesis. Another is a poster from the internship that I did in Taiwan. And then two are actually kind of unique sessions, one being the Fields of Devotion film. We're doing a screening, an exclusive screening. And the other is a session for this podcast. So I'm really looking forward to this event. I'll be pretty active. Um, and it'll be fun to, to see people that I haven't seen in a while, too, of course. Oh, that's so exciting. For the for the fields of devotion, is there is that something that people can only see at the conference, or is that something people can see elsewhere too? Yeah. So as of yet, it's limited to these exclusive screenings. Uh, in the future, it will be available on more popular sites. So as it'll be mainly used as an educational resource, um, and there'll be more information on that to come once I'm allowed to share it. <laughs> That's amazing. I hope you have a fantastic time at ASHS. How many years will this have been for you attending? Oh, this is, so this is my third conference. 
Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think I'll be able to go the next couple of years because I'm going to be sadly and happily um, switching out of a horticultural crop. I recently accepted a job position at Cornell working on maize or corn. So I will be moving into the agronomy world. I don't know for how long. Maybe it'll I'll come back to horticultural crops. But for now, that's what I'll be doing. Uh, I shouldn't say this because this is a horticulture podcast, but agronomists are wonderful. You'll fit right in, I'm sure. Oh, good. That's that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from I've met such really wonderful people in one of my trips up there, so I think it'll be a really great position. Uh, though I do have to say, because I'll be accepting this position, which will be very time-consuming, um, I will have to step down as a podcast host. We're going to miss you so much, <laughs> Lara. I can't even say just a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. We don't talk on this podcast about what it takes to make these episodes and the ideas that have to go into to developing what these episodes are going to look like. Um, but so much of the podcast has been shaped by, by you and your perspective and uh, your wonderful questions. So truly... Um, I, I'm, I can't say how much we'll miss you. Oh, thanks, Sam. That's so sweet of you to say. And this, this might not be the last. You know, we, I could always make another guest appearance in the future or maybe come back when my schedule opens up, if it ever opens up. And so this is not the last of me. <laughs> oh, don't worry. You'll just see on your Google calendar, you'll see that I've just invited you randomly to certain meetings and we'll jump in and I'll just be interviewing you. It'll happen someday. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that'd be great to come back on this show. I'm open to to an interview. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess that's a bit of our lengthy introduction for today's episode. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. So in today's episode, we introduce Dr. Gerald Holmes, who is currently the director of the Strawberry Center at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. Before this role, he worked as a product development manager at Valent USA and served as an associate professor and extension vegetable pathologist at North Carolina State University. He earned his PhD in plant pathology from the University of California, Riverside, and a bachelor's in agronomy and crop science from the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. All right, Lara, let's get started. Good afternoon, Dr. Holmes. Before we get into the content of the episode, could you explain some of the unique aspects of strawberry production? Yeah, first and foremost, uh, everybody knows California grows a lot of strawberries, but most of them don't know that we grow somewhere between 85 and 90% of all the strawberries that are grown in this country. And so that's that's usually a number that surprises people. Um, and we do it on, on just about 40,000 acres. So on a per acre basis, it has a very high value. Um, as far as the, the, the strawberry production itself, it, it has a very unique look to it, right? The, the rows are laid out differently. The beds are laid out differently. If you get on Google Earth, you can tell a strawberry field even without seeing any part of the plant just by the, the way the fields are laid out. Hmm. Um, and most of the production happens in California, right? Yeah. All of it is, uh, well, 
those 90% of the strawberries produced in this country are produced in California. And all of that is produced along our central coast, real close to the Pacific Ocean. And the unique thing about that is that, you know, we have basically a desert climate in California. And you have this cold Pacific Ocean that is blowing cool air onto the landmass. And that keeps that first mile or so of coastline very, very moderate in climate. In the winter, it stays warmer. And in the summer, it stays cooler. So temperatures are really ideal for strawberries in that environment. Okay. So you have the, California has the perfect climate. I mean, have you always been able to grow strawberries there all year round or is that a newer, newer thing? It has always been to a, to some degree, uh, there's an ability to do it uh, because it never freezes or very rarely freezes, especially very close to the coast. Closer you get to the coast, the less possibility or potential there is for a freeze. Uh, but really the advent of day neutrality in strawberries is what made the season much longer. So that's a relatively recent advent uh, some of the uh, the breeders at UC Davis, <clears throat> uh, Roy Springhurst, introduced the genes for that trait. Uh, came from wild strawberries in the Was- Wasatch Mountains, and he in- integrated those traits into strawberries, and that really revolutionized the California industry. Made it a much changed it from a a springtime crop to a crop that was around. Uh, virtually all year, but there's still, there's still, you know, in the, in the winter months, there's a lot less production than there are, than there is in the summer or the spring, but it never goes to zero. Wow. So California sounds like the best place to go grow strawberries, but they're a finicky crop, right? And what sort of challenges do you see? Yeah, they, uh, so they're very susceptible to soil borne pathogens and, We've, we battle those quite uh, extensively. Anywhere strawberries are grown, soil-borne root pathogens are really important. Um, and so fumigation has been a, a, a keystone of production for decades. It was uh, soil-borne, I'm sorry, pre-plant uh, soil fumigation uh, started being practiced in the late 50s. And and it's still practiced, but we recently phased out methyl bromide in uh, 2016 was the last year that any methyl bromide was used in fruit production fields. Uh, but we still are using other soil fumigants to control soil-borne diseases. Methyl bromide was very, very effective. So losing that uh, has created some challenges and we're seeing a rebound in some of the soil-borne pathogens. And new pathogens, But right? many other... And some new, yeah, some new pathogens. Uh, Macrofomina, uh, crown and root rot, uh, showed up in about 2008. And then Fusarium wilt showed up around that same time. And then Verticillium wilt is kind of rebounded. And Phytophthora has always been a problem. So th- those, those diseases, we're going to see more of those, I think. And we'll probably see some more root knot nematode, which is something we haven't seen at all, really. It's been a kind of a non-problem for us, but we'll probably see that come back as well. 
Okay. And then just to clarify, when you're talking about fumigating strawberry fields, what does that actually look like just in case anyone in the audience doesn't know what that means? Yeah, it's a really interesting process that took a long time to develop. How do you get something that volatilizes under normal atmospheric pressure underneath the soil and trap it there so it stays there? Um, so they have these specialized rigs that put the material down about 18 inches below the soil surface. And at the same time, they're injecting the material into the soil. They're tarping it. So they're covering it with a plastic tarp. And it's really an impressive uh, machinery to watch that happen. Uh, so then, then it stays there for a few weeks. And then, and then they uh, remove the plastic and, and then plant the crop. Uh, right after that. So many people erroneously think that when a crop is fumigated that they're somehow being exposed to the fumigant, but the fumigation occurs before the crop is even planted. So the fumigant is gone by the time the crop is planted, and then it's many months after it's planted that they're actually harvesting the fruit. So the fruit are never really exposed to a fumigant. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's good to know. And this this type of practice is really happening for almost all of strawberry production. Uh, yes, but not every year, not every field. So it's expensive. So they don't do it every year, but uh, it is done, especially where you have soil-borne diseases that are important. And it may be every three years or every four years. In some cases, it might be every year, but that would be less common. Yeah. Oh, it was so impressive. The first time I saw it, um, you drive past, imagine you're like driving past this field and it looks like a lake of plastic that's just like reflecting the sunlight and goes potentially for acres. Um, it's really impressive to see. But yeah, you mentioned the cost there. What are the other main costs of strawberry production? Mm. Yeah, strawberries are really expensive to grow. Uh, people are always amazed to learn that it costs about $100,000 to grow one acre of strawberries in California. And a big part of that is labor. About 60% of the cost that goes into uh, growing strawberries is spent on labor. It takes uh, hand labor to plant, and then it takes hand labor to harvest. And uh, every strawberry is picked by hand and put into a clamshell, they're field packed, and that harvest occurs twice a week. So it's a it's very, very frequent compared to almost any other crop, which is maybe a one-time harvest or two or three times. You know, it depends on the crop, obviously. But I think strawberries are really the most intensive because during the entire harvest season, they're being harvested twice a week. Uh, that's a lot of people going through the field twice a week that's a lot of labor. Uh, every one of those clamshells that you see in the grocery store was handpicked by somebody and handpacked, and that was only touched once, and then it went onto a pallet and then shipped somewhere in the world. So pretty impressive. But lots yeah, of labor, wonder. and labor is expensive. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty crazy process. And you're saying seasonally, but this is really like all year round. As you were saying before, right? So are there problems that are more severe now that their strawberries are grown 
around most of the season? Yeah. So the longer something's in the field, you know, the more time that they have to um, be exposed to, say, soil-borne pathogens, for example. Uh, so that's that's important. Seasonality. So the length of the season, right? If you have a short season crop, you you basically avoid a lot of diseases and pests because they just don't have a, enough time to multiply. And so you can get in and get out before things really get a chance to accumulate. Uh, with strawberries, we start in October with planting. We'll start harvesting in, say, February. And then that harvest, depending on where it's planted in, the, in California, it may go all the way through December. And that gives soil-borne pathogens a long time to work on on the roots. So, you know, something that that if you were if you were only going to have five months or three months, you'd never see that problem. But when you've got a crop that's in there eight nine months, you're more likely to see it, right? So you're trying to protect something over a long long period of time. And this is what many people in the agriculture industry that are in the business of of developing products that are crop protectants, they don't understand that you're trying to protect something, especially for the soil-borne pathogens. You're trying to protect a crop from a pathogen for for almost a whole year, and you're trying to do that in soil, and that's that's very very tough. Especially when, like you described, people are going out into the fields very frequently to harvest. Right? That that could be. Uh, moving around pathogens and spreading disease even more, right? Yeah, although most of the pathogens that we're concerned about aren't the kind that are being spread uh, on by by workers. They're soil-borne pathogens, but those workers will go from one field to another, and they they have uh, soil on their shoes. Um, there's so there's a little bit going on there, but. There's also uh, equipment that goes from field to field, and there's probably a lot more soil being carried from one place to another that way. Although growers understand this, and they do, they do wash their equipment between fields and do their best to, you know, uh, minimize the spread of soil from one place to another. Uh, above ground pathogens are being windborne, and so I think the the uh, workers, as a method of a means of spreading pathogens around is probably minimal. Yeah. Does any of this affect the taste of strawberries? I mean, there's the age old concept of buying in season, right? But can you buy them at any time and they always taste the same in California? You can buy them at any time. You can go to the store, at least uh, stores I go to. You can find strawberries any time of year there. They may not be from California. They may be coming from Mexico. Um, and strawberries are shipped all over the world. Uh, so you can buy them any time of year. And, it, and I think that they're, they, they have the potential to taste great anytime. But you're more likely to get great tasting strawberries during the main season. In Cal- if you're buying them from California, you know, uh, f- strawberries will vary in their flavor a lot just from week to week. That's pretty interesting. If you've ever been in a strawberry field and been able to sample the fruit over and over again from the same place, you realize, oh, they, they really can taste quite different, it's especially after rains. 
uh, it seems like uh, the flavor gets diluted by all the water in the environment and you get a more watery, less flavorful strawberry after rains. Uh, the best conditions that I find is when you have cool nights and warm days. And so the fruit aren't growing super fast, uh, but and there's plenty of sunshine for all of that photosynthate to get in, the sugars to accumulate, there's enough time for them. And they also tend to have a really great texture when they're that, that temperature, that cool morning temperature. So, but, but, uh, I've tasted great strawberries any time of year from our fields and I, I sample them a lot, but they do vary a lot based on, based on weather, I would say mostly. Okay. I have a follow-up question then in terms of taste. I know a lot of people complain to me that, you know, crops don't taste as good as they used to. And tomato is the prime example. Uh, do you get assessed a lot about strawberries too? If so, like what would be some of the potential causes for why it might not be, quote, tasting as good as it used to? Yeah, that's a great question. I got that from my mom, <laughs> actually. Uh, and she would complain that, you know, what have they done to strawberries? Uh, but strawberry, agriculture and, and strawberries are part of that system. And the system has the same characteristics, whatever the crop is. And things are evolving, things are changing, new varieties are being developed that uh, some taste better than others. And so, you know, she may have grown up tasting a strawberry that was uh, a totally different variety. It's going to have to be a totally different variety than what we produce now. And when when I showed her strawberries that I thought were great, she also thought they were great. And the reason they were great is because I picked them from a plant where they ripened all the way until they were ready to eat. And they did that on the plant. So that's number, that's probably the second most important thing to consider. And the first most important thing is which variety are we talking about? So you get a, you get a variety that has great flavor and you're going to enjoy that. So if you go to roadside stands, they'll tell you what variety they're growing. And they're usually growing something that is very, very tasty. And they do that deliberately, obviously, because people going to a roadside stand expect a little different strawberry. Uh, so, so I think the two most important features that would determine flavor are variety and, um, wow. Now I forgot the other thing I said, (laughs) what was it? Oh, it's ripened on the plant. Sorry. It letting it ripen all the way. So you have this thing that you're trying to do, which is very difficult, which is ship a strawberry across the country. And you think that's strawberries are really perishable and uh, they refrigerate them and they ship them across the country. And so they have to have some durability to them. And, one way they get that is by picking them just a little bit on the underripe side. Because if you pick them ripe, they're going to be overripe by the time they get to market and they're going to rot. And nobody wants the rot. And so what you're trying to do is ship the most flavorful berry that's been on the fruit uh, plant as long as possible, but it doesn't rot quickly. I mean, they'll all rot eventually. Strawberries, you know, Five days is a long time to have them on the shelf. And if you've put them in your refrigerator, everybody knows how quickly they go bad. So you have to eat them right away. And it's amazing. It's amazing that we can grow them 
on one side of the United States and ship them to the all the way to the other side of the United States and they, and you can go to a supermarket any day of the week and find strawberries that were picked within days. Right. So that same strawberry that I might be buying in New Jersey that came from California, if I picked that same strawberry a few days later on on the actual plant, it would taste a lot better. Yes. Mm-hmm. The sugars are accumulating rapidly. So, and then variety. Don't don't forget the variety piece. It's super important. And, you know, people are sometimes making they are always making trades. The growers have to consider yield as part of the package when they decide what to grow. And uh, the breeders are trying to produce varieties that yield really well but also taste great and will be shipped across the country. And that's a hard thing to do, get all three of those things in one package. And, that, and then I'm not even mentioning disease resistance and pest resistance and, and uh, you know, texture and aroma and so forth. There's, there's a lot of things to consider. And so there's no perfect package. But I think we get better at it over time, and we keep producing better and better varieties. So I think the varieties we're producing right now in California taste great. Monterey is probably our number one variety, and uh, it's a great tasting variety. Yeah. I'm really excited, too, about the um, new flavors they're trying to develop, some of these breeders, and how, you know, maybe it'll have more of like a cotton candy profile or more of a, you know, tart flavor profile, too. Are you seeing a lot of that in California as well? Yeah. The flavor profiles differ dramatically. And it's fun to taste them. We have a we have an experiment that we've been doing for the last six years in a row where we evaluate uh, anywhere from 90 to 50 to 90 different genotypes. And so we get to taste all of those and and they're amazing and they do very dramatically in their in their flavor and they're very subtle. And you ask people to tell you which one they like the best and they'll all come up with a slightly different answer. But there are some trends that you see. Uh, people really love Albion. That's one of my favorites. And there's always brand new things coming. Uh, they'll Some of them taste really fruity, almost like a pineapple. And others have kind of a kiwi type of flavor to them. Some are just super sugary sweet without much acid. And then others have a lot of uh, acid, a little bit of a tang to them. And I like that. I think that's what Albion has to it. I like that it gives it some depth to the flavor, not just sweet. Um, if you're going to dip chocolate, uh, strawberries in chocolate, you don't really want to compete with the chocolate. So the tart is very helpful. Uh, so anyway, it depends on what you're doing, right, uh, with, with the strawberries. And I, I think most people that I've shared Albion with are just amazed. I remember the first year. So Albion was, a, was the number one variety in California about uh, 15 years ago. And it's since uh, fallen out of favor because it doesn't yield as well as the newer varieties. But if I share that variety with anybody, they are amazed at its flavor. And the first year that we started our center here at Cal Poly, we grew Albion and we were able to sell that on campus and to a local grocery store. And many people thought that we 
were the most amazing research center because we had basically solved the problem <laughs> because they'd never tasted better strawberries. And I, I, um, as much as I appreciated the compliment, I had to inform them that it was all about the variety and that that variety was actually about 15 years old. At your center, you also do disease research, right? You do a lot of different things. Yeah, we have uh, the Strawberry Center. Let me just tell you a little bit about that. We started in 2014. It's a partnership between the California Strawberry Commission and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. The, the long name is the California Polytechnic State University, but it's affectionately known as Cal Poly. And uh, the partnership between, so the Strawberry Commission is the organization that represents all the growers, processors, and shippers of strawberries in, in California. And uh, they wanted to partner with Cal Poly because many of the people who work in the ag world here in California are graduates of Cal Poly. We have a, we have a large college of agriculture, over 4,000 students, nine departments, and so many people were very familiar. And then our location is right in the middle of strawberry country. We're about, we're about equidistant between the two uh, northern and southern districts, Watsonville, Salinas, and then uh, south of us, Oxnard. And then we're about 30 miles north of uh, Santa Maria. So we're very, very centrally located to the industry. And we started just in pathology. That was my background as, in, as a pathologist. And there were two pathologists. We got started, and we were doing nothing but uh, pathology research. We started a diagnostic clinic. We started doing uh, research on soil-borne pathogens. And we found that the fields here were infested with verticillium. So we started screening genotypes for resistance to verticillium. That emphasis on pathology quickly grew to uh, include automation, because of uh, the importance of labor in this industry, we started an automation program and hired uh, Dr. John Lynn, an engineer out of Maryland, who was actually uh, working on an automated decapping machine for the processing industry. He joined the Strawberry Commission, but works at uh, Cal Poly on automation projects. And they have a really thriving program now. And then shortly after that, we added entomology. So our three areas of focus are pathology, entomology, and automation. Okay. And we have probably uh, anywhere from uh, six to 10 projects ongoing in each of those areas at all times. On the topic of automation, I've been seeing some provocative news articles suggesting that robotic harvesting is going to solve all of these issues regarding labor shortage and cost of harvesting, et cetera. Do you think this type of automation is on the horizon? You know, it's it's normal for people to be really optimistic about it because automation has done a lot of great things we've seen in agriculture, just tremendous advances. And I've had a lot of fun watching the automation improve over the years that I've been involved in strawberries uh, since 2014. It's been really impressive. There's uh, more than a dozen companies in this space trying to uh, perfect it. Uh, they're look, we're working on uh, an end effector or a hand that uh, mimics the human hand that can be very delicate in, in finding and, and picking the strawberry. Cameras and artificial intelligence that sees the strawberries and can identify the ripe ones. 
but no camera, no matter how technologically advanced, can see it when it's hidden. And no camera can find out what the color of the strawberry on the underside is. It's very, very difficult. So it's a, it's a very challenging thing to do. We have really made a lot of advances. There are, there are strawberry robotic harvesters out there today in California harvesting fruit, packing it, and selling it. But the, the, the uh, caveat is they're not doing it yet at a level that would justify its commercial widespread use. It's not fast enough yet. It's not finding enough of the fruit. It's finding too many fruit that we, it shouldn't find. It's not finding enough of the fruit that it should find. And so uh, it'll, it works best on early season crop when the plants are small and the fruit are large and they're more visible. And that may be the place. And even if we can develop robots for that portion of the season, it's still a tremendous advance. And so we keep working on it. it we're not there yet, but uh, I don't know if we'll ever get there. It's, uh, I'm not going to predict the future on that one. And, and it's really interesting to see uh, just these engineers are amazing what they are coming up with and things that you wouldn't think they're capable of doing, like picking a strawberry as delicate as that is without bruising it. You think, how could a robot do that? But it's amazing what they've been able to do. Yeah. Something I really um, have admired about you is how optimistic you are. Um, I'm My research is in strawberry, and so I'm familiar with a lot of the challenges. And it seems like there are a lot of reasons to not be optimistic about the costs and the challenges of strawberry production. Um, but how excited you are about the future um, is very validating. <laughs> so, oh, what, yeah, what are you excited about right now um, in strawberry research or in strawberry production? Well, automation is one of those things, and it doesn't have to be uh, robotic harvesting. It could be some other part of the process of farming strawberries that we're able to do and do better with machines. Uh, our group just developed a hole punch, which punches or burns holes in the plastic using an implement uh, drawn behind a tractor. And it's able to do the work of 10 people. That's a really, really impressive. If we can develop uh, runner cutters, that's going to save time and energy. We, de we developed another hole, uh, hole punch that just makes the, the hole that is already punched with a, a kind of a slicing mechanism, it makes it a little bit wider so that during stand establishment, more water gets in. So that's helping. It's not necessarily, it does reduce some labor, but it's also helping water ingress and stand establishment. So that's a, that's a tremendous advance. And I see a lot of exciting things happening in breeding. And I'm really excited about uh, breeding for disease resistance. I think we've been able to see that in places where we thought there wasn't as much optimism about controlling soilborne uh, pathogens and the diseases they cause through genetics, I think we're finding that there's a lot more that we can do than we thought previously. And so there's been a lot of advances made with macrofomina, uh, fusarium wilt. They, they just uh, identified the genes responsible for that resistance. That's really exciting. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things to be optimistic about. I think our, our industry as a whole, we have very innovative farmers and they're, they're really cutting edge uh, thinkers and they, they are not, slow to adopt 
to new technologies. They're always looking for new ways of doing things. And, and they're not waiting for the university to show them either. They're, in some ways, they, they need our help. But in other ways, they just go out and do it. And then we find out later that they've developed this really new, interesting practice that's solving problems. For example, um, in macrofomina, that's a very opportunistic pathogen, meaning that it, it, it gets in and attacks plants that are compromised in some way. So, uh, and the compromise usually occurs in in the uh, in terms of uh, drought stress and heat. And another thing that probably contributes to it is uh, salt stress. So, if you have salt stress and you have drought stress and you have high temperatures and those things tend to go together, you get a lot more macrofomina. And we're starting to tease out what are the individual contributors to that. And we're finding that if you relieve the the physiological stresses on the plant that it'll do much better against that disease to the tune of of a 50 to 70 percent reduction in disease so that's really impressive if we got that with a chemical we'd be really that chemical would be making millions of dollars wow yeah that's so cool i mean a lot of our Topics besides, I guess, variety choice have been also on conventional agriculture for strawberries. But what are your thoughts on organic farming? Do you think it's actually better like a lot of people believe out there? Hmm. That's another one that uh, I it's a conversation that I get frequently with with friends. Uh, Most of my friends are not in the agricultural world. They're people that have like most of us, we interact with other people outside of agriculture and they don't know anything about how crops are grown and and they will uh, often ask me about organics and if it's better or worse or the same. Or uh, What I find is that people don't really understand what it is and they falsely attribute flavor or quality that they're experiencing to to a label like organic. So you have to, again... We talked earlier about flavor. What are the two things that make up a most the, mostly we can attribute strawberry flavor to? Uh, one is the variety, and two is how long it was on the plant. Does any of the, either one of those things have anything to do with organic? No, but uh, oftentimes an organic strawberry may be sold at a roadside stand, and so the person will attribute the flavor they're getting to the fact that they're organic rather than the fact that they got picked that day or that they're growing a variety with superior flavor. So that's what I see as a, a kind of problem with false attribution. Uh, so I don't, uh, we grow about, let's see, California has about 12 to 13% of our acreage is grown organically. The same strawberry farmers that do conventional farming also do uh, organic farming. They have certain fields, certain uh, locations that they think are better for their organic production. They have to do it in a very different way. Sometimes uh, one of the biggest challenges with organic farming and strawberries is getting the enough nitrogen to the plants. So uh, conventional farming can use high concentrated, highly concentrated nitrogen fertilizers. Uh, organic production has to use natural fertilizers that um, have very low, much lower concentration of nitrogen. So it's harder to give the plants all the nitrogen for maximum production. So yields go down. That's one of the reasons why organic costs more is because you don't produce as much 
uh, fruit from a, an acre of strawberries with organic production. And one of the reasons why is because of nitrogen fertilization. And so uh, sometimes when you stress the plants for nitrogen, you get a more flavorful strawberry. That is also one of the things that might contribute to it. So it's kind of an indirect effect, right? Um, I, but I wouldn't say that overall you get a different uh, flavor of strawberry from organic farms versus versus uh, conventional farms. So I try to, without without saying, you know, you shouldn't do that or you should do that, that's the way to go, or you don't want to poison your children, you know, don't buy your conventional. You know, it's a choice. People people have their uh, their preferences. I just want them to be rational about it and, and uh, realize, too, something that people don't realize is that organic, uh, any organically grown crop is is sprayed with pesticides. They're just not the same pesticides that can be used in conventional farms. Sometimes the same products are used in both conventional and organic strawberry production. Uh, sulfur, for example, is something that gets a lot of use, and that, that's a that's uh, okay in conventional and organic strawberries. Probably about 60% of the practices that are used for strawberry production in conventional fields are also used in organic fields. So people don't realize that. They think that it's like another world. You know, you, you went into the forest where no human has ever been and you pick these berries in a pristine form. You know, this isn't what happens. Uh, they're, they're farming strawberries in a very modern way and they're just having to use different, different products to protect their investment. You know, farming is very risky business, so you want to protect that investment, and organic farmers want to protect it just like conventional farmers. They're all, they are the same people, and so they're going to use whatever uh, they can that they feel is effective for protecting it from pests and diseases. Right. So maybe the discussion isn't so much about organic, but large-scale versus small-scale producers and what they can manage and what types mm -hmm. of practices and how long it's sitting on the plant, but I guess it's hard to label for all of those little things, yeah. right? <laughs> and where, where they're going to get shipped and if they're going to get shipped, who their customer is, you know, all those things play into it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much complexity. That's really been one of the, the things that struck me about this conversation is the nitrogen, like you mentioned, and the disease resistance and the post-harvest quality and how long it takes to get to the store and then to get to uh, the, the dinner table. Um, so in the view of like all of this complexity in this huge industry, what would you say are the big takeaways about strawberry production? Mm. I would say when I look at the big picture, I'm just so impressed with, like you say, the complexity of it and that we make it happen year after year after year with with few hiccups, relatively few. You know, this year we had uh, torrential rains. We had more rain than we've had in uh, 25, 30 years. And we lost about uh, 1,200 acres of strawberries just to flooding damage. You know, rivers that overflowed their banks and uh, rain that uh, destroyed the crop. And we still are managing to pull off a pretty successful year. And actually the thing that, that most people don't know at all is that more of a setback for us this year was the temperature, not the rain. 
we've had a very cool year and it remains cool to this day. We're here and already we're, we're first, second week of June and we're still having weather that feels very early springish. And so this has delayed yields, uh, pretty dramatically in the state. So volume is way down than it has normally. And we're still managing, uh, it will have its impact, but I go into the supermarket and I see this cornucopia of produce from all over the world. And I, I think it's a modern miracle and we've been doing it for a very long time. And it's just so impressive that we can have these things at our disposal any day of the week, uh, walk into a store and see that. I, I find that so impressive. And then when you see what actually goes into it, when you see the fields and you see people working and packing these things and forklifts, loading them onto trucks and trucks driving to coolers and then coolers uh, cooling the product and the product getting on another uh, transportation device, a truck or a plane or a, a rail car, and they're getting shipped all over the world. And somehow we walk into the grocery store and everything is there in this pristine, colorful, for the most part, amazing array of, of variety. And we have access to it at really inexpensive prices at low, I would say amazingly low prices. And I, I look at that and I just think, wow, how do we do, how did we do that? That's really, and I know, and I really, if I look at every one of those, there's things about each one of those commodities. I don't know. I've, I've worked on quite a few commodities in my career. And so I know enough about enough of the commodities to, to know what a miracle it is that it, that it occurs. And then working with farmers, I just really, these, these are great people. Uh, sometimes farmers and farming get a bad rap. You know, there's like, these are the people that are destroying the planet or, you know, abusing workers. This is not what's happening. Now, these are people who care about their workers, who care about the planet and the environment and are very, very grounded in reality because they understand the law of the harvest. And that is that you reap what you sow. And so you don't get, they got a really good BS meter, the farmers. You don't trick them very easily about, about things. You know, there's no shortcuts in farming. You can't plant your crop a month later than normal and expect to harvest at the same time. So you're going to pay the price if you're late on your planting, if you're late on your pest control, if you didn't prepare the field properly, you're probably going to pay the price for doing that. So there are consequences for your actions. That's a that's an important thing to live by. And I find that that's maybe something I, I really enjoy about working with farmers is they're those kind of people. Yeah, I totally agree. Farmers are the biggest uh, skeptics and reasonably so with what they have to, to deal with. But before we conclude the episode, I do want to ask a bit of a personal question. I know in your background, you've hopped around between industry and academia. And I know there's this idea out there that uh, it can be really hard to do so. I mean, did you have any challenges between entering industry when being in academia previously or vice versa? Yeah, great question. One I've thought a lot about. And I think the fact that I have worked in industry and in academia is really what prepared me for what I'm doing now, which is, which is a really interesting blend of both of those uh, things. Because you want to, I, I have to be steeped in research. I have to be steeped in cooperative extension and I have to be steeped in industry. And those three things are, are things that I've done. Not, not too many people do that, right? Uh, 
they go go back and forth. Uh, um, I had a, a really nice position at North Carolina State University. I was uh, pretty close to being a full professor when I when I had an offer from uh, private industry, and I became. Uh, I decided to leave because I was. I felt like I had done the things that I wanted to do in academia, and I felt like the rest of my career was, although uh, there wasn't anything very negative about it, I felt like I needed a new challenge. And so I went into private industry. I had worked with private industry for all of my career, but I had never been in private industry, right? So I thought that that looked like an interesting place to be and a place that I could excel in. And I spent six years doing product development for fungicides. And uh, I, I decided that I didn't want to do that the rest of my career. And so I started looking for other opportunities. And I found this one. And I thought that its job description fit my background very, very nicely. And uh, it's been a really great thing to do. I've been here nine years now, so almost as long as I was a professor at NC State. And I'll probably finish my career here. And uh, it's been really fun to build something. So I'm, it's different, right? You build a program at NC, in, in an academic institution, and this is an academic institution. However, I, I'm building this new, it's a new concept, and it's been fun to build it. It's been fun to work a lot more with undergraduate students and uh, and to work really closely with industry. I'd always worked with industry, like I said, and also in, in cooperative extension, worked with a lot of commodity boards, but I'm working with this commodity board much closer than I ever had before. And so it's brought new insights. And so I enjoy, I enjoy that mixture. And I think the things I've done have prepared me for it in a, when you look back, you think, oh, you know, it looks very, very a normal course of progression. But believe me, every fork in the road was a very, very uh, laborious decision and heart-wrenching. So it's not easy to navigate life and your career, but so far it's worked out well for me. Well, I don't know about Lara, but that's very uh, reassuring for me. Thank you, <laughs> Dr. Holmes. And thank you for this interview. This has been fantastic. To learn more about the Strawberry Center at Cal Poly, please visit strawberry.calpoly.edu or visit the Strawberry Center on Facebook. To learn more about the strawberry industry, you should check out the related paper titled The Status and Future of the Strawberry Industry in the United States, which is published by Hort Technology, which is one of the open source peer-reviewed journals published by the American Society for Horticultural Science. Links to these articles will be provided in the show notes. If you'd like more information about the American Society for Horticultural Science in general, you can go to ashs.org. Sam, if people want to follow your work, what's the best way? They can find me on LinkedIn at Samson Humphrey. Lara, what about you? You can follow me on Instagram at theplantphd or on LinkedIn with the tag Lara Brindisi. And I just want to say it's been a blast being a co-host for this podcast. Thank you so much for being a wonderful audience. And hopefully you'll hear from me again soon. ASHS podcasts are made possible by member dues and volunteerism. Please go to ashs.org to learn more. 
If you are not already a member of ASHS, we invite you to join us. ASHS is a not-for-profit and your donations are tax-deductible. This episode was hosted by Sam Humphrey and Lara Brindisi. Special thanks to our audio engineer, Alex Fraser, our research team, Lena Wilson and Andrew Comax, our ASHS support team, Sarah Powell and Sally Murphy, and our musician, John Clark.